Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. On today's show, we talk to Chris Hurd, the co-founder and CEO of First Base, a remote work infrastructure provider that helps both new ventures and large established companies onboard and serve their growing ranks of employees who are no longer venturing into the office. Chris, along with co-founder and CTO Trey Bastian, actually launched FirstBase a year before the pandemic fueled the rise of remote work. As they were attempting to get their fintech startup off the ground, they learned firsthand how challenging it could be to get new remote employees set up with the right equipment and provided with an all-around positive experience at the outset. Since they made the pivot to FirstBase, their business has taken off. Earlier this year, they raised $50 million in a Series B, bringing the total funding to around $65 million. Given his startup's focus, it's probably not surprising that Chris has some strongly held views on the continuing debate over the merits of remote work, including his characterization of most offices as distraction factories or adult kids' clubs, where it is incredibly difficult to get real work done. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Great to have you with us. Good to be with you, Daniel. Tell us briefly about First Base and your journey as an entrepreneur. Your original business was a fintech venture, right? So how did that end up morphing into First Base? Yeah, it seems like a very large departure, right? You start building a financial technology company and you end up outfitting people with equipment. But I think the rationale was we started out building that company um, and we became a remote business. We experienced a ton of problems, but there were three major ones for us. So number one, I live in Scotland, as you can probably tell from the accent. Um, and as convincing as I think I am in helping people join us in building this business, I didn't know if I could convince all the incredible people we needed to move to Scotland and work in an office with us. Number two, we're a startup. We never had much money. Spending on office space just didn't feel like a good investment to me. And then number three, which was the biggest part, was that it was a quality of life decision for me. I miss my kids walking, laughing, talking for the first time, wanted to be there to see them grow up or want to spend more time with my family, all while being able to do great work. So we became a remote business and then ultimately discover all these other challenges and obstacles around operating that way. And something we cared a lot about was how can we provide an incredible experience? How can we make sure you as a worker as safe, comfortable and productive at home as you were in an office? And basically, we just ran into problems there, too. We saw that that was super expensive. It was time-consuming. Equipment wouldn't turn up on time. People would leave. Things would break. And ultimately, we wanted to solve that for ourselves. It sucked for us at two people. It was going to suck more at 20 people. If we ever got to 200 people, it was going to kill us. So we built an internal version of that. Eventually, we discover a lot of other businesses are struggling with the same product. And then September 2019, which um, in retrospect turned out to be pretty good timing, we focused full time on building first base. You guys obviously made the decision to turn your focus to the first base business before the pandemic had made remote work such a, a booming, growing model. What made you think that you could make this the entire business? I think looking at the trends, it was somewhat obvious to us that remote work was growing incredibly quickly. If you look between 2008 and 2018, the number of remote workers in the U.S. alone had grown something like 400%. In the U.S., there's 3.5 million remote workers pre-pandemic. 
So that just felt like a bet that we wanted to make, right? It felt like the most talented people we knew all wanted to work remotely. It felt like all the businesses we were seeing that we really admired were becoming more flexible and remote. You look at these things as platform shifts, right? Like remote work, hybrid work, flexible work in my mind, is the same type of platform shift as mobile. Now, to your point, you can't predict that a global pandemic is going to happen. But when it does, and it accelerates the bet that you're making by 10 or 15 years overnight, you're obviously in the right position to do that. And there's obviously a combination of luck that comes to you and you're building the right thing at the right time. But I think you make a lot of that luck by building in the right area, which the trends dictate the world is heading towards. Before you had launched, had you had a fair amount of business travel and traveling for your jobs before you made the decision to focus and and uh, stay in Scotland? Yeah, that's absolutely part of the rationale. So if I go further back into my background, I work in the oil and gas industry. And as a natural consequence of that, you travel a lot, right? Oil and gas platforms are in the middle of the North, North Sea. We worked with clients all around the world, places that were far more remote in Scotland. So yeah, I, I spent a lot of time away from home. I traveled a lot. We were on site a lot. You miss your kids walking, laughing, talking for the first time. And you have that frustration. I remember having a conversation with my dad and I'm like, this this sucks, right? Like, why am I not seeing my, my kids? And he's like, hate to break it to you. That's like what you got to do to keep a, a roof over your families. I'm like, mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe not, right? Maybe there's a better way. Have you not traveled at all for the most part for first base? Yeah. And I think like what's even more interesting than that is at no other time in history could I build the business I'm building from where I live. How many other people living in some small outpost town in Scotland raises $65 million from the most prominent investors in the world? And we did that, like you say, without ever meeting them in person. I had never stepped foot in San Francisco prior to that point. I had never met someone in person we'd raised capital from. I'd never met most of the team. Fortunately, we did get to meet up earlier in the year, but that wasn't necessary, right? We'd, we'd done a lot and achieved a lot of that without having to be in person. And I think the consequence there is like, well, what about the access to opportunity this now gives, right? I'm one example of that, and I can give you my story. How many other people are there like that in the world? How many single parents who can't work for great companies now get to access great jobs? How many people with health conditions or impairments that find it really hard to work in offices now get to access the best opportunities. So for me, it's always been about that. How can we use remote work as a tool to democratize access to opportunity? And what's the implication of that? And how widely dispersed around the globe are you and your team? We are everywhere from San Francisco to Berlin. And yeah, we very much eat our own dog food. (laughs) When you've decided to go into this business, how much did you look at the market and, you know, did you find uh, that there was really no one out there offering the exact kind of service and product focused on this remote work area? And how surprising was or is that? I think first we looked internally and it was like, well, what opportunities or options are there for ourselves? And as we began to explore that, it was like, okay, there's nothing. Like that felt really odd. It felt like there was a huge opportunity here in a market that was inevitably growing. And that um, surprise that there wasn't something there. Fortunately for us, we also had a bunch of friends building remote businesses. So we go to them, we ask them the same questions. They tell us the same thing. But I think when you're a startup and you speak to friends who are running startups and you get told that we're also feel- experiencing the same problem, 
your mindset goes to, okay, well, this is just a startup problem, right? Fortunately for us, because we were building the fintech product, we were also talking to some of the biggest banks in the world. We go to them. 24 hours later, we're talking to the senior leader of one of the biggest banks in Europe. And they verbatim tell us the same thing. They're like, this is broken for us. It's expensive. It's time consuming. So that was the moment for us where it was like, okay, not just a small company problem. And that just made us dig even deeper, right? Like, well, what can we pull together here that becomes compelling, not just for small companies, but big companies. And as we built through that, I think solving that problem as efficiently, effectively, seamlessly as we did is the reason that we work with everyone today from the earliest, fastest growing businesses in the world to $20 billion publicly listed businesses. Is there now a growing roster of competitors in this space that you're encountering? If you don't see competitors or copycats as a startup, you're in the wrong game. That is the first thing that it flags to you. Well, actually, you might not be building the right thing. You might not be as smart as you think you are. Yeah, inevitably, we have seen copycats emerge in different markets. Great for us. We, we see a lot of them do cold outbound, where inevitably they do more market research and they end up finding us because I think we've done a relatively good job of building the thought leadership and, and market presence that we have. But yeah, competition is fun. Are there more traditional established IT providers that offer services or, or software to smaller, large companies trying to to build more of a real focus in the remote work area that you're having to uh, try to differentiate yourself from as well? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think like there are traditional value-added retailers, VARs, who do some of the things that we do. But I think almost exclusively, their biggest care is, can we sell the piece of equipment? Um, we partner with a lot of those people all around the world, and that's not necessarily the direct value that we bring. The reason companies use us is for all the other intangible stuff, right? We really care about providing an incredible employee experience from day one. There's no uh, shortcut for getting that experience in terms of understanding, well, we think this, we don't know it, we need to learn why we're right or wrong. And I think that is the thing which has enabled us to differentiate both from value-added retailers, from copycats, I actually don't think any of those things are necessarily our biggest competitor either. I think our biggest competitor is inertia, right? It's companies who are doing some version of what we're doing ourselves. It's not great. Someone inside the organization owns this who probably shouldn't. They don't love their job because they end up spending half their time searching for equipment. Their front living rooms, a stack of laptops during the pandemic, which they're not necessarily all getting back from the people that leave. That's really where we need to differentiate. How is using first base 10x better than a company doing it themselves? That's the real differentiation. Your company is both a, a software and maybe even services and a hardware vendor, right? Because you're offering the platform for onboarding um, as well as you know setting up um, and optimizing remote work and then also the hardware itself to, to, get, to get working. And that can even include things like ergonomically correct chairs and furniture. How challenging is it to balance two very different kinds of businesses, you know, with different margins and, and that sort of economics? The best metaphor to think about is imagine first base is like a physical world AWS. So there is a physical component to that servers. There's a software component to that, which is you plug into that. 
we kind of do the same thing for companies with equipment, right? They get to scale up and scale down their demand as per the requirements. Now, I don't necessarily think there's a bigger or smaller challenge than any other business. Like if it's a pure SaaS business, 90% margins, like everyone understands that from the outside looking in. I think for us, it's balancing the product that you deliver to the client in terms of creating and establishing that all-in-one full stack solution that takes care of not just the new equipment that they need, which I think is relatively straightforward, right? You let them finance it, they lease it rather than paying for it. But also there's a whole other side to the equation there, right? Well, great, you're helping us take care of new workers. We have a bunch of existing workers. How do we take care of that? And that's really the key. How do you tie those two worlds together, right? Don't just solve like half of the equation, solve everything and let them do it from the same place. And yeah, you need to figure both those parts out together. They need to work well together. Otherwise, like the product and service doesn't work as it should. What are the biggest pain points your customers, you know, that you hear from them um, and that you're helping them to solve? I think the best place to start with that is like almost reflecting that back on you, which is how has your onboarding experience been in every business that you've ever worked for? Like, has there been any that have been particularly great? Has there been any that have been bad? And like, why? What was the component piece that led to it being good? And I think that's an interesting thing to play back with the customer, right? Like, tell me about your your onboarding experience. How was it? Well, the equipment never turned up on day one. And as you go deeper, right, you start to hear that not just in a remote world, a hybrid world, you hear the same thing when people are working in offices full time, right? Like I worked in an office, I never had a laptop for two, I never had a computer for two weeks, I never had a desk, I didn't have somewhere to sit. So the reality is like the problem we solve isn't necessarily predicated on the world being remote. It's not just a remote problem. It is just a huge problem that businesses are not very good at. And I think the reason that traditionally they aren't very good at it is there are a lot of interdependencies, right? You've got the IT leader who's potentially responsible for setting up the computer, for procuring it. You've got the HR leader who's responsible for it turning up on time. They don't talk to each other, right? The IT person is the one that ships it. The HR one, the HR team is on the hook and is accountable for whether it gets there on time, but they never talk to each other. And they've never had something that gave each other transparency about where people were in the process. So first base really gives both those teams a mechanism to understand each other's world and ultimately make sure that the end user, who's the, who's the product in this situation, has an incredible experience. We are talking about the 255 million desk jobs globally specifically. Right? We're talking about the knowledge economy. In the knowledge economy, you as a company are only as good as the people you employ. If your competitors are more talented, they're going to crush you, full stop. And ultimately, if you can't attract and retain the best people, they're going to crush you anyway. And I think this is one of those pieces which is maybe most ignored, which has the biggest impact on that, which becomes a huge differentiator around, well, this is how we're going to provide an incredible experience. Everything's going to be there on day one. Your onboarding is going to be seamless. When you get to anniversaries, we're going to send you gifts and swag and like, all the other gaps between those things, there's just so many big opportunities to make it better because like everyone has bad experiences at all those points. And especially with onboarding, right? Where you, when you think about the whole th- uh, importance of a first impression, like that can make all the difference in how you view the rest of your time at a company in some respects. A thousand percent. And like even the other end, right? What about the experiences when you've left businesses, right? You don't even remember the good one. Like a friend says like, hey, like you were used to work for company X, how was it? 
Yeah, it was great. I didn't have a bad offboarding experience. If it's bad, <laughs> you got right? a long story. You always remember. <laughs> Let's talk briefly about the growth plans of the business. And obviously, you talked about the fundraising, you know, the significant uh, Series B you had, I think around 50 million. Um, how do you think about growing the business and helping companies in more ways with remote and hybrid work? And what can you tell us about the growth of the business in the last couple of years? Yeah, so I, I guess the, the the highest level number I can share on that is we grew something like 20x in terms of year-over-year year revenue growth last year. This year, things are, are continuing to motor. We've continued to build the foundations of the business. Um, we have a lot of work to do. It still feels extremely early in the, the journey of first base. Um, in terms of building the, the product and service um, and, and solution for customers, First base today is extremely straightforward, right? You look at the product and you understand exactly how it is going to help your business. When you zoom out and you expand the aperture, what we're actually building is an employee relationship management platform for modern work. So we're starting with the first core piece of infrastructure which companies need, which is physical assets. There are a whole bunch of other infrastructure pieces companies need to set up, support, and scale their teams globally. So that's where our opportunity comes. We think physical assets are the stickiest, hardest problem in the remote, hybrid, flexible work stack. We embed ourselves incredibly deeply inside organizations by plugging into the workflows they already use, your HRIS system, your SSO, your MDM. We see all the other problems that they're facing as they go more remote as well. So that's the types of things we'll, we'll help them with. To the extent you can give us a sense of the split between um, remote first and, and hybrid, uh, more hybrid style uh, companies that you're working with you know, in terms of your customer Yeah, we, we are right across the, the, the equation. So as, as you can imagine, a lot of companies who find us are more remote than the average business. We have a lot of businesses that work every which way. They are fully remote. They are hybrid remote. Some of them are fully in office, right? Like we spoke about it before that this is just such a large problem that companies are facing everywhere. As they start to use us for one version, it becomes obvious how bad their other processes are. So examples would be like, we start with remote in the company pretty quickly. They're like, well, actually this is better than the experience for our people in office. Why wouldn't we use that for this as well? And what about the attitude towards remote work between SMBs and, and startups versus larger, more established corporations. I think some people would just assume that the larger, more established corporations are just more hesitant to embrace it. Yeah, I, I'd posit a slightly different viewpoint, which is like, I actually think it's a competitive advantage to not be as uh, transparent about what your, your, your future decision is going to be, right? I think we are seeing situations where a lot of organizations have cut back on the office space that they've had over the last two years. They're probably not going to renew much office space over the next two years. So the reality is they actually don't have the space to go back to the office, irrespective of what they're saying publicly. We've also got several situations where big businesses own a lot of real estate, and it's really hard to unwind that. Are they going to sell it? Probably not. Um, are they going to be forced to be more in office than they should be because of that? Possibly, right? I think there's this remote work dilemma dynamic, which is you have a lot of the earliest stage, most innovative businesses start out fully remote. 
And what they've seen very quickly is that they can hire a caliber of talent that they could never have done while working in San Francisco um, or New York or London or wherever else you want to say. There's like this dichotomy at play, which is like smaller companies may be more remote today, but eventually bigger companies have to respond. Otherwise, they risk losing their, their, their best people, their biggest competitors. Let's just talk briefly a little bit about, broadly speaking, the future of work and, and there's the whole remote uh, versus hybrid versus office debate. You've got some very large companies that have talked about not being willing to, to, to go remote or in, to some degree even hybrid. They talk about you, you know, uh, needing to be in person to, to build a culture or for mentorship or apprenticeship. I know Elon Musk has been pretty outspoken about, you know, if you don't want to work in the office, then, then, then don't, don't work for us. How do you respond to the concern about culture and in-person, the value of in-person, you know, with mentorship or apprenticeship? Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I, I have a lot of strong opinions on all of it. I think the piece on culture is an interesting one because I think I most he- often hear we need the office for culture by companies that don't really have culture that should be conserved in the first place. I much prefer to take a very different viewpoint, which is like culture isn't that interesting to me. What's far more intriguing is community. And when we're talking about community, how can we hire for community ad? I think that just changes the equation, particularly when you're talking about a remote world. Because when you talk about community, um, there's a, there's an outcome there, which is like, well, how often are we going to come together physically in person to ensure our communication and collaboration is where it needs to be? The answer might be zero for some parts of a business. Um, for other parts of the business, it might be a lot higher. It might be once a week. It might be once a month. It might be once a quarter. Um, but I think at some point you need to make a decision on what that is. Um, there's, al- there's also like this interesting thought experiment that I've done on stage a couple of times, which is like, okay, I'll concede in-person is better. You tell me how much better. It's not 50% better. It's not 20% better. It's maybe somewhere between like zero and 10. And the more times we've met together in person, the closer to zero it gets. And the example I would use there is like your best friend lives on the other side of the world. Every time you come back together physically, it's like you were never apart. And that's because you have built up that uh, communication, collaboration skill. You continue to communicate virtually between those points. But like the trust is there. It's your friend. I think the same thing happens in a work situation. Now, the, the question that then comes after that is where you say, okay, well, it's somewhere between zero and 10. When should we invest in coming together in person? Now, again, doesn't need to be every day. What are the things we should come together physically for? What things are better in person? And the things you start to hear there are, well, like maybe it's end of year planning, maybe it's brainstorming sessions. And there's a whole bunch of things. There's, there's probably a debate we're not going to answer there in respect to the things that you should do together in person. But I think the other side of that equation is, well, what about being in person is actually better than being remote? And like my answer to that is, well, offices have like almost became these distraction factory adult kids clubs where it's actually incredibly difficult to get any work done. People would come in before work to get their emails done. They stay late because during nine to five, they spend it padding out the eight hour day to make it bearable. And we don't get work done, right? Like simple as that. So if you're doing deep focused work, you're, you work in the knowledge economy, you need that space to do that, right? And turns out better to do that remotely because you don't have all those things that are super accessible. Yeah, I, I, I love the term you were using about an adult kids club. So you've also have said when 
people say that they're not productive working remote. Most of those people are, are not very productive when they work in an office either. <laughs> I mean, that's, my, that's my experience, right? Like people, people are like, well, I, I, I just can't get my work done at home. And you're like, but you get it done in an office? Like, is that true? Or do you just not get work done there and it's harder to spot? And I think there are some cases where in certain cities, if you live in a in a small apartment with a family and young kids, that that sometimes that can that can be a challenge. But I, I get your point. There are almost as many distractions, if not more, uh, at, at the at the physical office. Perhaps there's a misimpression that fully remote means you never see coworkers in person, as opposed to it's just not every day, um, or or it's not all the time, but it's you know maybe four times a year or something like that. I think that's spot on. I think that's the best way to think about it. And I think you're you're absolutely right. I think certain people have this perception that remote first means remote only. And I couldn't be further from the truth. I, I love spending time with my colleagues. We come together physically for fairly often. I'm with my leadership team in Salt Lake City in a couple of weeks. We don't spend every day together because we have work to do, which we get done better when we're not in an office just shooting the breeze. I've seen you talk about uh, how so many companies trying remote are, are doing it wrong and, and replicating office working styles. C- can you just talk a little bit about, about what you see out there in terms of the sort of missteps? Yeah, I think replicating the office is probably the, the worst thing that companies can do. You just end up in this situation where like, wh- why, why do we need to force nine to five working down our, our team's throats, right? For me, as a business leader who has a team that is all around the world, I don't really care if you work from nine to five. Like if you do your best work from six in the morning till 10 in the morning, you want to go surf, maybe you go for a run, you pick your kids up at three in the afternoon. And then at night you do your next best work from seven to 11. I'm not going to stand in the way of that, right? What I really care about is the outcomes that you produce rather than the time that you spend working. Now, That doesn't mean that we don't need to meet synchronously. Like there are going to be times that we do have to have conversations live, but that shouldn't be the default mode, right? Synchronous work, which is what we do in office, doesn't need to be applied to remote world. So I would say I'm a strong proponent of being as async um, as as a company can be. Yeah, and speaking of synchronous versus asynchronous, uh, obviously we've all in the last couple of years gotten very used to... um, lots of uh, Zoom or, or video calls, which, have, you know, to some degree can be as frustrating as, as having an entire day of in-person meetings. I think I've seen you talk about how you think uh, writing and words are going to become increasingly uh, important, even more so um, going forward in the remote work economy. What's grounding your thinking there? I think looking at the people who are successful in offices the people who have been disproportionately successful have been louder, more gregarious, command and control type people, right? Loudest person in the room has the best idea. Now, I think one, another benefit of remote is it's a lot more democratizing in terms of enabling people to share the, those things, right? It's not just in Zoom. If you're a great writer and your company has a culture of documentation, you can influence things. Writing can be this thing which is scalable across a whole organization from a knowledge-based perspective, which is very different to being in a meeting with someone and they say something, well, that doesn't scale as much. When you think about the next few years, what do you expect to be or what do you consider 
the biggest roadblocks for first base with respect to the scaling journey ahead? Have you already learned lessons recently about scaling in the last couple of years? I think the lessons you almost always learn early is the importance of incredible people, right? A real force multiplier that having the best talent by your side when you're facing big, gnarly challenges. And I think we have been incredibly fortunate in the incredible level of people that we have added to the team. I think your question on like the market dynamics, the way the world's changed, I think the way, the way I see that is that cataclysmic events typically breed the conditions by which the generational businesses of tomorrow emerge from. So you might look at the 2008 financial collapse, you might look at the dot-com bubble bursting, take whatever event you want. Now, go back to 2008, you look at the sharing economy businesses that came from that, you look at the fintech companies that came from that. And inevitably, if I say like, name the four or five businesses from that period that you're going to remember, it's going to be Airbnb, it's going to be Uber, it's going to be maybe someone like Stripe or Plaid or someone like that. Now, I think now the last two years, the next two years, I think unquestionably, it's a period in which you're going to see a lot of remote work uh, flexible work, hybrid work, infrastructure emerge. So you're going to see businesses that are international PEOs. You've got remote.com. You've got deal companies like that. You've got companies like First Base, which obviously enable organizations to set their workers up with the right tools and equipment. And I think given those general tailwinds, given the way the market's working, given the way companies are reacting to remote, given they're cutting back on office space, they haven't renewed leases, the next two years for us are just about, can we execute? We nail the plan. Can we build the right product? Can we move fast? Can we be operationally efficient? Can we hire the right people? And can we close the right clients, right? I think we've done a great job on that front. I mentioned up front, we work with everyone from early stages to $20 billion public businesses. There's a lot of white space between those two points. Now, the challenge isn't defining which white space within that spectrum are you going to focus on, um, and can you be efficient in that market? Can you solve their problems? Can you find more people that have the same problems, and can you move fast? And in my mind, that's just a question of execution. The thing that stops us won't be the market not being there. It won't be not building the right product. It's can we just nail execution? Right. I'm wondering, when you talk to organizations, uh, maybe especially the bigger ones that already have IT providers for in-office that help them with that sort of stuff. How often do you encounter any skepticism about needing to, to work with a specialist like yourself as opposed to, oh, well, we think we can handle this with, with the folks that already help us with our equipment? We most often see that skepticism coming from the most senior people in organizations where it's like, we don't have this problem, right? Like never call the baby ugly. Um, and it might be a CHRO, it might be a, C a CISO, it might be the CTO. It's some senior person who is a couple of steps removed from this. And I think for us, that's then a conversation of like, okay, talk me through the process. I'm not sure. Okay, maybe take a step back then. Talk, talk me through your own onboarding. How did that go? And as we have had those conversations, as, as you get those viewpoints, you say, okay, who in your organization is responsible for this? And often you hear, I'm actually not sure. It's some combination of HR and IT. And frequently, like I, I would say like over 98% of the time, if I have that conversation with a senior leader who doesn't think it's a problem in their organization, 
98% of the time, they're going to come back to me and say, actually, I talked to some people in my organization, to, to some friends in my organization, IT is not speaking to HR, HR doesn't understand the actions IT is taking, onboarding's poor, stuff doesn't turn up on day one, when things break, our team's unproductive for five days, and when people get offboarded, we don't get the laptop back 50% of the time, and it's causing us huge security concerns. And I think like that's the key, right? So when you speak to people at that level, sometimes they, they don't get it. When you speak to the people who have the pain, they're like, I have 15 laptops in my front room. I have four laptops from my, my last four businesses. This just sucks everywhere. And that's a much easier conversation because you don't have to educate them. You don't have to get them to speak to anyone else. They're just like, we're ready to buy, right? Like, and like your other question was, was on, uh, do, do they think about existing retailers? I think the key benefit of working with us is if you're working with your own retailers, super hard to work with eight different vendors. If you're international, super hard to work with eight different vendors in 12 different countries. Like nobody wants to pay 96 different people. We make it super easy for them to pay us one bill rather than it being CapEx. They lease it. If things break, we fix it. End of the two-year life cycle, they get a new piece of equipment like um, the iPhone upgrade program. And speaking of international, you talked about how dispersed your team is. Are you already serving customers pretty broadly um, across different continents? Do your services translate pretty well the same across regions and borders? Our service is identical in terms of experiences from North America to the UK and across the whole European Union. So if you have someone in any of those regions, they're going to get the same product in the same time scales. And when things go wrong or they leave, we're going to be able to collect that in the same time scales as well. So that, that would be our core geographies. We can do certain other geographies. We're going to focus on the ones that we know our clients need us to be great at. Those are the, the ones above. There's not a lot of customization per market that is necessary. Biggest customization is, can you give us the local keyboard uh, version of the laptop? That makes sense. And lastly, from a personal standpoint, when you think about five, 10 years down the road, where do you see yourself and what will success look like by that point? I was having this conversation uh, yesterday afternoon with a team. So we've got a board meeting later today. And for us, I think given everything we've talked about or talked about already, the, the tailwinds, the way the market's changed, remote work's been accelerated by 10 or 15 years overnight, um, us just needing to execute. Now, there's obviously always a non-trivial chance that a startup doesn't work. Like That's just the reality of building any startup business. But I think given all those other variables, I think we feel very good about where we are. Um, for us... I think we begin to judge our success on whether we get to the public markets or not. And for me, that's just another starting line, right? Like a lot of people see it as we're building a venture back business. We're going to get to the public markets and we're going to celebrate. We're going to get to the public markets and we're going to continue to build an incredible business. Like there's no point in taking the eye off the ball then. And I think for us, like I mentioned the cataclysmic events, the way the world's changed, I think that's the opportunity that we've got. And I think that's the difference often in, can you build a three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten billion dollar business? Or can you build one of the businesses that is the generation defining business of consequence that really enabled this new shift to emerge? 
And that's the difference when you can build a 30, 50 and beyond billion dollar business. I think that's the opportunity we have. A um, lot of work to do to get there, obviously. Decades a long time. We only founded the business three years ago. So right, sure. three three acts as long as we, we've been around already. Um, but that's kind of how I break it down. And I assume um, you will uh, hopefully still be uh, working remotely most of the time from Scotland, right? From your perch there? I will continue to drink the remote champagne from the north of Scotland. Or the or the or the remote scotch, right? <laughs> Depending on your your preference. Depending on the time of day. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, Chris, uh, I want to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk. This has been awesome. Thanks for having me, Daniel. That does it for today's show. Again, I want to thank Chris Hurd of First Base for joining us. Thanks also to our production team: Molly Carlin, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Noah. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.